0: Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast, and welcome to our new mini-series on medicine and the law. JP and I are excited to bring you this mini-series. In it, we're going to cover in multiple episodes the many interesting, often confrontational, and necessary ways that neurosurgeons and doctors in general relate to lawyers. I think you'll find this mini-series to be exciting, and informative, And as usual, just like our coronavirus and Hell Week episodes, this will be released on a weekly basis in conjunction with our regular episodes.
1: Hi, everybody. JP here with the usual disclaimers. The opinions expressed on the Neurosurgery Podcast belong to the people expressing them and don't represent those of any institution or professional organization. Further, the topics discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice nor the practice of medicine. And finally in particular for our guests of that profession, the subjects discussed on this podcast do not constitute legal advice or the practice of law. But don't hold that against us, folks. Advice isn't free. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today we have another entry in our mini-series covering medicine and the law, and I am simply delighted that we're joined today by my very own brother, Michael Colson. Who is a practicing attorney who does business and intellectual property law. He practices in New York City, a graduate of Florida State University uh, College of Law in um, Florida, the great state where we both hail from. Uh, I, again, am delighted to have you on the show today. Michael, we're going to be talking about intellectual property, some of its general principles and applications to neurosurgery and medicine as a whole.
2: Uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Absolutely. I'm very delighted to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: So, broadly speaking, there are are three kind of big categories of intellectual property entities or or legal concepts that we're going to try to talk about today that are most applicable to neurosurgeons or doctors interacting in this space. Those would be copyright, trademark, and patents. And, you know, we were talking the other day, Michael, and I, as I've said a thousand times on the show, am just lost when it comes to business, lost when it comes to law. I barely know the difference between these words. So why don't we take these one at a time and maybe you can help me and some of our listeners understand what these things actually are and how a neurosurgeon would approach them. So let's take the first one, copyright. What exactly is that and when would it be applied?
2: Sure. Um, And let me actually preface this by, you know, just generally explaining that Intellectual property and intellectual property law overall are really, um, designed to protect innovation and creativity. Um, but it's also important, um, to foster competition. So when you think about these three broad, um, concepts, it, it's kind of a, a, a dueling consideration, right? You want to protect the inventor, you want to protect the innovator, but you also, um, want to foster um, an environment where improvements can be made and the intellectual property can be shared and utilized by society overall. Um, So with that, let's talk a little bit about copyrights. Um, Copyright is essentially a property right that protects against the copying of something. And that something is referred to in the Copyright Act as an original work of authorship that is fixed in any tangible medium of expression. So that's a lot of legal jargon. What does that actually mean? So copyright does not protect an idea itself. It protects the expression of that idea when it's fixed in something tangible. And so an example of that could be a literary work. Uh, the idea or a story being transcribed on uh, a piece of paper. It could be a dramatic work, an associated music, uh, something like that. It could be a sound recording like this podcast. So the protection here is against others copying that uh, particular expression of the idea. And it gives the author or copyright owner the exclusive rights not only to reproduce or copy it, but to distribute it and publicly perform or display their work.
1: So thinking about in the context of neurosurgery or medicine in general, um, I would imagine some examples of uh, objects or works that can be copyrighted would be articles, books or book chapters, figures we, we frequently make, so Let's say you're, a, you're an author, or a creator of one of these works, and you want to seek a copyright for perhaps a book that you're working on. You're the chief editor. Um, in general, what, what steps would someone take trying to protect their work?
2: Sure. Um, copyright, unlike uh, some other intellectual property, uh, does not necessarily require registration with the U.S. Copyright Office to protect it although registration is very important, um, and it gives significant advantages to the copyright owner. Um, If, in the normal course, someone would want to register their work, um, you would file a registration form with the U.S. Copyright Office, um, deposit copies of your work. For example, if it was uh, to be a sound recording, you would provide a CD with the recording on it, and pay a fee. And then copyright examiners uh, in the U.S. Copyright Office will review the submission to make sure the application is completed properly, uh, receive the non-refundable filing fee, and receive your deposit. And that is pretty much all it takes uh, to obtain copyright registration over a work.
0: So, Michael, let's talk now about trademark, the secondary, and I'm very interested in this. I just filed a trademark a couple months ago. Tell us about what trademarking is, what its advantages are, why you might want to get a trademark and and how you deal with that.
2: Sure. Uh, And congratulations on your registration. Um, A trademark is essentially any word, name, symbol, something like that that is used to identify the source or origin of goods and services, and it distinguishes those goods and services from others. Now, a trademark could be the overall image of a product, including its packaging and its design, um, which is some kind, sometimes referred to as trade dress. And the classic example of trade dress um, that's that's used is the unique design of the Coca-Cola bottle, for example. Um, Trademark can also be, uh, like I said, a name or logo, such as uh, the logo um, that you use for this podcast. And what the owner of the trademark rights obtains in that mark is preventing others from using similar marks. And it does so in order, to promote its most important purpose, and that is preventing confusion in the public um, as to the source or origin of the goods. And there are a number of factors that go into the consideration of determining whether you know something is likely to uh, confuse consumers, and you know that could entail the similarity of the marks. Uh, of the uh, goods or services and the strength of the mark itself.
0: So Michael, give us an example for neurosurgeons, how they might get involved in trademarking and the trademarking process.
2: Sure. Um, registration of a trademark um, is not mandatory, uh, but it is recommended because it can substantially expand your rights. And so what you would do very similar to a copyright, is you seek federal registration at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office if your mark is to be used in interstate commerce. And while it's not mandatory, um, a trademark search is recommended before filing uh, the registration application uh, to determine whether it can be uh, successfully registered. And if the inventor or um, the person wishing to use the mark um, intends investing in a, you know, a large amount of money, um, it's advisable to perform an extensive sh- uh, search um, to make sure that you're not pursuing something that in the end you may not be able to obtain.
0: If I could, for example, uh, if you and your brother were going to start a huge clinic and spend a couple billion dollars to build the Colson Clinics of Neurosurgery, you might want to protect the name of that, right? So that people couldn't copy you and make another Colson Clinic that's like a clone that's not really the same thing, right?
2: Exactly. And that's actually a great idea. Um, (laughs) Dr. Wang, you want to bankroll us?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'll get the first hundred million in. Absolutely. Right away.
1: (laughs) Uh, Something that i found very interesting when, you know, we we were talking a few days ago, Michael, getting ready for this, and and you kind of walked me through these concepts so I didn't sound as ignorant today on the show, is that these words literally mean what they are. A copyright is the right to copy something. A trademark is the mark of an entity out in the trading sphere. Um, And, you know, it's just observing that these terms that are are bandied about, you know, in, in medicine, a lot of our terms are archaic. They come from Latin, from Greek, but but these words are really speaking exactly what they are. And, you know, as we transition to the last section here, where we're going to talk about patents and their applicability to neurosurgery. One thing I do want to ask you in general terms for all of these entities, a a lot of our listeners, we ourselves, Dr. Wang and I are involved in the academic sphere. So we do a lot of educational work. In particular, this podcast is an educational show um, and something I ran into when I was making some episodes last season was the, the you know, the so-called fair use doctrine, where something that is copyrighted, something that is trademarked, can be used fairly if it's a not-for-profit not for scenario, for educational purposes, quote-unquote. Is, is this a, a sound and firm legal doctrine? Does this vary state by state? Uh, how much ground am I standing on if I, for example, use a piece of music in a podcast episode
2: here? Sure. Um, and, As any layman would probably expect from a lawyer, that is, uh, you're not going to get a very straight answer. And (laughs) the problem is, is that there is not uniformity um, in that. So the fair use doctrine is very important to copyright. It is a defense to an allegation of copyright infringement. And so fair use, as you said, Uh, can be asserted when a copy of a protected work is made for purposes of criticism, comment, news reporting, for example, and important to probably the majority of your listeners, teaching and scholarship. Now, the copyright um, act itself doesn't really get into too many particulars as to what constitutes fair use. And so it is a very fact-intensive inquiry. um, And essentially, it has to be, because it's going to change case by case, um, depending upon what the copyright is, the type of work, and the type of work um, that's used, and the the character of its use. Um, But very generally speaking, uh, what is considered... uh, when determining whether something has been fairly used is the nature of the work, the amount and uh, substantiveness of the portion that's used as related to the entirety of the work itself, and the effect of the use on the potential market. Um, So the amounts of use, such as uh, using maybe 250 words, like an excerpt of something, uh, using it uh, spontaneously and the purpose of the use you know perhaps for educational purposes are all factors that are considered.
1: Now that's very interesting to think that there's you know there's not really a firm doctrine here and it's kind of considered case by case but but there are these categories of consideration as you say. So um again not to try to give specific advice but just thinking generally if someone were to i don't know be making an educational podcast or putting together an educational pamphlet, and they wanted to use uh, something that is not in the public domain. In in general, is there someone or or some specific kind of attorney or or legal specialist to whom you could turn? Or because these things are nebulous, um, is is there ever a scenario where you can kind of, you know, better ask for forgiveness than permission and just see what you can get away with?
2: Um, I think that... Uh, you can definitely, uh, reach out to an intellectual property attorney, uh, specifically a copyright attorney to try to get an opinion in advance, um, you know, in, in terms of whether an opinion like that is bulletproof, it probably isn't, but to the extent that, you know, the, uh, user is found, you know, to have infringed, I think it would go a long way. Um, in determining potential damages, whether uh, a legal opinion was sought out in advance. Hmm. Uh, and, and just to reiterate kind of what I said uh, before, uh, considerations as to the amount of use of the work, you know, whether it's excerpts and the purpose of use are, are important to this inquiry.
0: Michael, that's great. What a wonderful summary. We can envision neurosurgeons as authors or, or creative artists for the copyright. Uh, corporate, it, uh, They could start corporations, I should say, and want a trademark. But of course, the area that is of most interest to most neurosurgeons is in the patent realm. And uh, everybody's familiar with the case of uh, D- Dr. Michelson, who is an orthopedic surgeon who has an army of over 50 patent lawyers and uh, was involved in litigation with Medtronic and other spine companies, and his patents were worth uh, something in the order of billions of dollars. Uh, so it was well worth to go through all that. But tell us a little bit about patenting, what it means for uh, creative individuals like surgeons who want to you know, come up with an idea for a product and, and get it sort of cemented and documented with the federal government.
2: Sure. Um, a patent, very generally, uh, essentially gives an inventor a monopoly. Of limited scope and duration Um, and it's available for any new and useful process machine manufacturer uh, or any new and useful uh, useful improvement of those things and it is possible to obtain a patent on a wide range of items Uh, it could be computer software it could be medicinal drugs um, and more traditional patentable subject matter that would be important to you and your listeners, such as medical devices, obviously.
1: Now, in general, um, you know, let's say that I'm a neurosurgeon. I, I have an idea for a new device or a new application of existing technology, and I want to seek a patent. Who's the first person I call? Would it be an intellectual property attorney such as yourself? The first
2: person you should probably call a uh, would be an attorney, uh, specifically a patent attorney, and you would want your patent attorney to conduct what's called a patentability search to determine whether a patent is available for the invention and how broad the protection would be. And throughout that process, you would then prepare and file a patent application with the USPTO, the US Patent and Trademark Office.
1: Uh, Thinking broadly, I mean, is is there a general timeline to these things? How how long do these processes normally take, or does it vary by complexity of the item to be patented?
2: It varies by complexity. Uh, I would say that a good approximation could be um, up to about 24 months, two years or so, um, because the uh, patent process is um, a little bit complicated in the USPTO. And it entails an examination uh, where they search for um, prior art that could be relevant to the new invention and a report is issued. And then um, there's a determination whether uh, the claims and the scope of the patent itself, sort of how broad or restricted they can, they can be. And all this is referred to as patent prosecution.
1: That's very interesting. So, just to wrap up, to respect your time, um, thinking kind of broadly about all three of the main categories we talked about today, and and kind of in in line with our fair use conversation, I I know broadly speaking, as a, as a layman in these circles, that patents expire, copyrights do run out, um, and and so thinking about not only between copyrights and patents, but also specifically with a medical device or professional or medical literature or artistic creations versus, say, a song or a film. Is there any difference to, to your knowledge in how long a patent may hold duration or how long there may be copyright on an academic figure as opposed to, say, a piece of music or a piece of creative art? Or are these things across the board, a copyright expires at so many years, a patent lasts at so many years, uh, you know, disregarding extensions and so on?
2: Sure, Uh, the protection period is uh, generally uniform that despite um, what different types of um, subject matter are at issue, but there are different time periods for all three of these things. A uh, protection uh, by a patent is usually for a period of 20 years um, measured from the filing date of the application a copyright if the work is created on or after january 1st 1978 is generally protected um, for by the life of the author plus an additional 70 years and a trademark is a little bit different a trademark um, doesn't necessarily uh, expire Your trademark rights can have an indefinite duration as long as they are used properly and consistently used. So you can lose your rights to a trademark um, if they're not used or if they evolve into a generic name for a good or service. And the the most common example of the loss uh, of something due to it becoming a generic is aspirin, for example.
1: Wow. Well, I think I sat down for this episode, as I've said a million times, very ignorant on these concepts and I'm going to walk away slightly less ignorant, but at least I know what a few more words mean. Um, Mike, thanks so much for your time today, joining us on the show and, and sharing all this information and insight with our listeners. Um, to everyone listening, uh, please write us now, send in your checks. The Colson Clinics will be opening nationwide soon. Uh, we'll be making our IPO next year. Uh, Mike, again, thanks so much for joining us on the Neurosurgery Podcast. It
2: was a pleasure. Thank you both so much for having me.